would ask you to open your Bibles this morning to the 16th chapter of the Gospel according to John. John chapter 16. And I'm going to ask you to follow as I read verse 25 to the end of the chapter. Our Lord Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly, and not using figurative speech! Exclamation point. Now we know that you know all things, and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When I consider two things. First, my eye surgery this week, and then the difficulties this passage of scripture affords to us, I conclude I was not a very wise man to come to church this morning. I probably should have stayed home. I could have had someone else have the responsibilities of preaching. That would have given me a week to heal and a week to figure this stuff out. But instead of choosing wisely, I've determined to go full speed ahead and make an attempt to put before you what I believe to be God's word for us, for us found in what is a difficult portion of what we call the farewell discourse of our Lord Jesus. Now, the good thing is that not everything in the passage is difficult. It ends most famously and most beautifully, where Jesus says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If that's all I had to talk to you about this morning, my work would be light and easy. But these memorable words that are found in the latter part of the section come on the heels of less well-known and honestly confusing and confounding words that fill most of the content of these two paragraphs that I've read this morning. Here you have strange things. You have strange contrasts, difficult to understand. And another difficult to understand, but if you read the commentaries, they hardly agree with one another about very much. You have figures of speech versus plain speech. What's Jesus talking about? What's this figures of speech or parables or some of the translations say um, what's that in contrast to the plain speech that he says will happen and then he speaks of the coming hour and that day uh, versus uh, now 
the time that is now. Um, he speaks about asking the Father in my name versus I will ask the Father on your behalf. He speaks of how he came from the Father, how he's going to the Father, he came into the world, he's leaving the world. Well, that's stuff we can figure out pretty much. But um, a lot of this you can't. You can't really with precision say it's this rather than that. And um, some of this we've seen in previous studies. A lot of this is new. Some of it is confusing. And um, so there's difficulties. So have mercy upon me if I don't answer all your questions this morning. I prob- no, one, no one probably could. No one probably could. But there's also difficulties in squaring what we find here with other passages of Scripture, particularly those things that are said about Jesus and his teaching in the other Gospels, in what we call the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, called synoptic because they all see the same thing. Basically, they're seeing Jesus' ministry in Galilee. It was called the Greater Galilee Ministry, whereas John focuses about around the feasts, when Jesus came from Galilee and came down to Jerusalem at the times of the feast, the Passover, Tabernacles, uh, even Hanukkah in chapter 10. Uh, is a feast that Jesus came to the temple. And that's how John structures his gospel. But in these other gospels that speak about the greater Galilean ministry, we find parables are explained to us as things that Jesus spoke to unbelievers while he then took his people and explained to them everything about the parables. Remember that? He, he said that um, to those that are without um, he, these mysteries of the kingdom of God are spoken in parables, they're spoken in riddles uh, but to those who are not without but within his own people uh, he makes all these things known but now why then uh, would we find here Jesus speaking parables to his own people, what's, what's going on here um, it's hard to really explain, what do you, it's hard to know exactly what to make of these things I want to give you a general principle of Bible study a general principle, when you encounter problems and difficulties in study the, studying the Bible, um, there's lots of things you can do to help to open things up. And one of the things I found helpful, and I find it helpful in this passage, is to ask yourself the question, what is here that gets repeated more than once? What are the things in the passage that give us to think that here's an idea that's important because it's said more than once. Because those are usually the things that Jesus is looking to emphasize. Repetition is one way God teaches us. And when things get repeated, they're usually the things of principal importance and the things that in general, if we see those centrally important things, we can then figure out the rest of it. And as I look at these two paragraphs, verse 25, verse 25 to verse 33, there are three things that get repeated. There are three things that come in for attention again and again. And the first one, at least in the order of the passage, has to do with the speech that Jesus uses. What kind of speech Jesus uses. Not the content of his speech, but the manner of his speech. The way that Jesus teaches. Jesus says, I have said these things to you. And that begins in verse uh, 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. And then that very same 
formula really concludes the section when in verse 33, I have said these things to you. See it twice? I've said these things to you, begins the section. I've said these things to you, concludes the section. And then in the middle, Jesus says, uh, there are things I will no longer speak to you in these ways. Um, and then they tell him, now you're speaking plainly. And so the speech of Jesus comes in to attention at least four times. Begins this section, ends this section. And some of you have attended here for a while. You know what that gets called. That's a literary device that's called an inclusio. When something begins a section and ends the section, generally speaking, it operates as bookends. It operates so that you need to see everything in the middle in the light of that. Jesus is saying things that need to be understood as to why he's saying them in the way that he is saying them. That's central to understanding this passage. But there's not only matters of speech that are in this passage emphasized again and again, repeated over and over. There are also matters of time in view. Again, Jesus speaks about the hour is coming. He speaks of in that day. He says, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed has come. And so time is a factor. There are times that are the now times in which certain things are done certain ways. And then there's the time to come in which things will be done differently. And so we need to wrestle. What does that mean? The present time? The future time? What's that all about? That's the second concern that comes at you again and again. If you can understand the passage, you got to understand these distinctions of time. So you need to understand these matters of speech. You need to understand these matters of time. And then thirdly, you need to understand the matters of faith in this passage. Again, it's repeated again and again. Verse 27, you have loved me and believed that I came from God. Verse 30, this is why we believe you came from God. Verse 31, do you now believe? This is the whole question of what do these guys believe? And is what they believe adequate? Do they believe rightly? And in what ways are their beliefs wrong? So there's the matter of the disciples' faith. There are the matters of the time, the hour. And there's also the matter of the speech that Jesus uses. If we get a handle on these three things, faith, time, and speech, I believe we'll be well on our way of understanding the passage and understanding better the words that end the passage, those wonderful words about his giving peace and taking heart and his overcoming the world. Now, I presented these things to you, speech, time, and faith, in the order that they appear in the passage. But simply for teaching purposes this morning, I think it's important to begin with faith. It's important to begin with the faith of these disciples. What were they believing at this time? And what does that faith that they had, um, what does it tell us about what's going on in this passage? What did these disciples of Jesus at this point, at the farewell discourse in the upper room, when Jesus is speaking to them, right before he's being going to be betrayed into the hands of uh, men, he's going to be 
brought to the authorities. He's going to be uh, charged. Uh, he's going to be convicted. He's going to be taken out and executed. Um, what's in their minds? What are they thinking? What is the content of their faith in the Lord Jesus? Well, verse 26. Jesus says, you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. What do you think of that? Pretty good confession of faith? You believe that I came from God. Don't get too enthusiastic about that profession of faith just yet. This is actually, it's the same profession of faith that Nicodemus made when he came to Jesus by night. And he says, we know that you are a man come from God, for no man can do the things that you do except God be with him. Nicodemus was impressed with Jesus' miracles. And he says, that, that cleanses it for me. You've come from God. And yet Nicodemus didn't have much more understanding than that. He didn't even know the need of a transformed life and heart. He thought he was okay before God by the stuff of his own birth as a Jew, or maybe his position as a teacher and leader in Israel. And he had not been humbled before Jesus. He had not seen his need of a Savior. He was just looking to get information from a rabbi. Jesus himself does give a fuller presentation of what faith in him involves. Because you see, they believed in his origin. He came from God. But Jesus says there's something equally important, even more important than his origin. That's his destination. It's not only where he came from, it's where he's going. It's where he's going. As you see it in verse 28. He says, I came from the Father... I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Now it's this matter of his leaving the world, going to the Father, by way of crucifixion, by way of execution on a Roman cross, it's the reality of his dying. It's the reality of his rising again from the dead. And ascending to the Father's presence. That was the matter that they didn't get. It was the matter that brought them confusion. It's a matter that they didn't understand. It's a matter that brought them sorrow of heart. It's a matter that brought Jesus to say, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm here for. You don't get this yet. You don't understand. All of their thinking about the Messiah and his coming involved the presence of Jesus, not the absence of Jesus. Not Jesus going to the Father, but Jesus staying upon the earth. Jesus being at the head of a conquering army, defeating the oppressed, the oppressed of Romans, and bringing restoration to Israel. Bringing restoration to the city, the people, the nation, the worship. Bringing it all back to its right, rightful place. In their estimation, that's God's kingdom. That's Jesus' kingship. It's a kingship of this age. It's a kingdom of this world. It's a kingdom of Israel. They even say after his resurrection, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're part of the, I don't know how you would say it, it wasn't quite MAGA, whatever it would be in that time. It was making Israel great again. They want to make Israel great again. We want to bring back the days of David. We want to bring back the days of Solomon. We want to bring back the days of Israel's glory. And Jesus is our meal ticket. Now, of course, they believed more about Jesus, personally attached to him, but they didn't get the mission. They didn't understand the mission. 
had to be here if any of this was to come to pass. It's interesting. Even when they think Jesus has finally said something plain and clear. Again, it's 28. And again, I'm having a problem just focusing because of the problem with the eyes, but you be patient. He says, I came from the Father in 28, have come into the world, now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. That's the full presentation. Not just where he came from, but where he's going. His disciples says, his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. And this is why believe we believe that what? You came from God, period. Not that you came from God or going back to God, but that you came from God. I rather wonder if this whole matter of now we see it, Jesus, now we got it plain, now it's all clear, now it's all coming into focus, and we understand it fully. And they, let me just back up a minute. You ever hear of Elizabeth Kubler Ross? Elizabeth Kubler Ross wrote a book back in the 60s. It was called On Death and Dying. And it was from that book by Kubler Ross that a lot of people's notions of the whole process of grief come from like five stages of grief. I really think that these disciples were going through many of those stages of grief. We see a couple of them in the Synoptic Gospels in a while, but I think here they're bargaining. They're bargaining with Jesus. That's one of the stages of grief. Kubaros defined. You start to make your bargains. If we do this, do this for me. We bargain with God. We bargain for more life in this world. And they're bargaining with Jesus. And they're saying, Jesus... You may be disappointed with us that we don't get this, but now we do. We're catching on now. So Jesus, there's no need to leave. You can stay. We're really disciples you should be pleased with. They're thinking maybe his going away has to do with some displeasure Jesus has had with them. And they're looking to make a bargain with him. Now we get it, Lord. We're believing. But even then, they're not hearing all that Jesus said. Even then. They're not believing all that Jesus declared. They get the part that he came from God, but the fact that he'd be going back to God without doing all the things they would hope he would do before that happened, that's not in their thinking. That's not in their thinking at all. That's why we believe that you came from God, period. And we're going back to the Father. In spite of all that the Lord had said, they still didn't get it. They weren't prepared for Jesus to go. He had to stay. He must lead the armies. He must restore the kingdom to the heights of they knew in former days. Maybe this gives us a hint as to why at this point our Lord took to speaking in parables to these men. The Synoptic Gospels tell us that Jesus spoke in parables to those that were outside. And there was a reason for that. As John's Gospel tells us many times, his time was not yet. There was an appointed time when he would go up to Jerusalem. There was an appointed time that he would give himself over to the, his enemies. There was an appointed time when he would be executed, he would die, and he would rise again. But his time was not yet. And yet his ministry in Galilee to the north brought great enmity 
on the part of those who sought his death. They were looking to bring him down in Jerusalem and put him to death. And he's constantly looking to stay out of their way. And he's always looking to diffuse the more volatile anger on their part. Because his time was not yet. And what a better way than to speak in such ways that you keep your enemies off guard. Parables tend to do that. What did he say? How do you understand that? Did he mean this? Did he mean that? And now let's talk about it. And you have your opinion. You have your opinion. And one thing you don't have is you don't have consensus on the matter. And so you can't say, well, let's all get together and put him to death because this is intolerable. What he's saying, if you don't really know what he's saying, he's telling you in parables. He's telling you the truth. He's telling you things that are important, but you can't figure it out fully. You can then say, well, Jesus, teach me more. You can have an open heart towards a parable speaker. To say, teach me more. Make me like one of your disciples so that you can tell me the, in, the, inner, the, the inner truth of the things that we're just guessing out here. There's a method to the Lord's madness in, in the sense of teaching in parables. is to keep these people from uniting in their opposition to him and leading the nation to reject him suddenly and then put him to death prematurely. His time was not yet. But now he's come to Jerusalem. He's no longer in Galilee. But when he was in Galilee, you know what Jesus did? He spoke plainly to his disciples about what he was going to go up to Jerusalem to do. You remember that in the, in the other Gospels? Look at the Gospel of Mark. Look at Mark's Gospel. And it's in chapter 8. At Caesarea Philippi. When Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ of God, the Son of the living God, and then even then Jesus charged his own disciples to tell no one about him. Again, we're not looking to present the issue before the nation that would lead them to take precipitous action against him. This is something for you to know. It does not be disclosed to those outside. But then he begins to teach those within his own group of disciples in plain speech what he's about to do when he goes up to Jerusalem. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. The very things that in chapter 16 he says, they're not plain yet. They're going to be plain, but not now. He was talking plainly back up in Galilee. But what happened with this plain talk? Again, they're listening to this plain talk about his destination. We're going up to Jerusalem. We're going to be rejected. I'm going to be rejected by the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, and I'm going to be killed. And after three days I will rise again. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, adversary. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Again, back to the stages of grief. They're in denial. They're in denial. They negotiate later, but here they're in denial. You're not going to do this, Jesus. We're not going to allow it to happen. It will never happen to you. Then again, in verse 30 of chapter 9, 
They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. And he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. When he is killed, after three days he will rise. You don't get much simpler words than those. Very clear. Very plain. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. And then they go on to argue as to which one of them would be the greatest in the kingdom. They had their agenda. They had their understandings. They had their beliefs that were in terms of Jesus' mission in conflict with the mission of Jesus. The last thing they wanted was for their Lord to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be put to death upon a Roman cross. And it's hard to know what they would have done to prevent that from occurring. But who are we talking about here? We're talking about people like Peter, who's impetuous, right? We're talking about people like James and John. They're called the sons of thunder, Boanerges. They're the ones that said to Jesus when they passed through a Samaritan city where he wasn't received, shall we call fire down upon them like Elijah did? Who would have known what these guys would have done to protect their Lord in the way of taking up the sword, storming the Bastille, or the Capitol, or the Temple, or whatever you storm to show your displeasure with the ruling authorities? You don't think they would have done that? I think at one point Jesus has to say enough of this plain talk. I'm going to tell them what I'm doing, but I'm going to tell them in cryptic language. I'm going to tell them in cryptic language. Some of you maybe have seen the famous Jack Nicholson scene in uh, A Few Good Men where he's on the stand with Tom Cruise was questioning Colonel Nathan Jessup, I think his name was. And he said, I want the truth. And Nicholson's reply is, you can't handle the truth. Well, there's a sense in which these disciples could not handle the truth. They would have misused the truth. Now Jesus is not going to stop teaching them truth, but he's going to say it in ways that will, again, like the those outside, raise questions. And that's what they're doing. They're asking, what do you mean by this Jesus? What is this, what is he saying? A little while, and we will no longer see him. And then a little while, we're going to see him. What was he saying? Where's he going? He's saying where he, go, where he goes, we can't follow. Where's he going? What is he going to do? It's raising questions. It's cryptic language. It's designed to be cryptic language because to be straight and, and, and forthright and plain at this particular point would not have been in the best interest of these men nor would it have been in the best interest of Jesus' mission. The Bible uses cryptic language many, many places. Did you know that? You ever hear of Shishak? You want to find Shishak on a map? You want to find Shishak on a map of the ancient world? Well, the Bible speaks about Shishak in the book of Jeremiah in chapters 50 and 51, 51, 52. But you're not going to find it on the map of the ancient world. But Shishak is code language for Babylon. It's code language for Babylon. You know how they got Shishak? Well, Babylon has, well, most Hebrew words have three letters to them. And so the, the, the Babylon has bet bet, that's the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and then it ends with a nun, that's the, like the ninth or tenth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you have two, um, you have two letters, second letter, one, 
tenth letter? You know what they did? They said, okay, let's do Babylon. But let's go to the other end of the alphabet. And if Bet is the second, we'll take the next to the last, the second from the last, which is Shin, which is Sh. And then we'll take the tenth from the last, which is K. And they come up with Shishak. Shishak. What is Shishak? It's Babylon. But it's Babylon in code. You don't have an exile people, a people in exile, talking about Babylon as Babylon to the Babylonians. <laughs> you know, it's part of being wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. You put things in code language because you don't look to je- jeopardize the well-being of God's people. And when you're talking about the judgment that's going to come upon Babylon, it's best to talk about the judgment upon Shishak. And you know what they mean. I mean, those in the know knows what it means. And these disciples would soon be in the know. And that's the timing aspect of it. The now and the hour that will come. And a lot of people are confused about that. What is the present hour? What is the hour to come? Well, the present hour is the present situation that they're in. Their present understandings, their present faith, their present belief. The present speech that Jesus had to speak to them in ways that would keep them out of trouble. In ways that would keep them from doing anything that would harm his mission. But the hour is going to come when everything is going to be made clear. Because Jesus' death will take place. His resurrection will take place. He will appear to them. He will spend 40 days teaching them, going in and out among them, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Then he will ascend to the Father in that day. And the day he ascends to the Father, he's going to send them the Spirit. And the Spirit will lead them into truth. All truth. All the things that I've spoken to you, he will bring it to your remembrance. He'll tell you things to come. These things won't be cryptic mysteries that you can't understand for long. You see this really throughout the book of John. When Jesus says in chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Everyone was mystified. What's he talking about? Destroy this temple? That temple took 35 years in building and he's going to raise it up in three days? And of course, he was talking about the temple of his body. But goes on to tell us that when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said these things and then they understood. Understanding came. But it came with the accomplishment of the work of Jesus. Because these people at this point thought for God to accomplish his purposes in the world of restoring a fallen world to himself, of restoring Israel and the kingdom to the people of God, that they needed to do a military assault upon the capital city. And they thought Jesus would be in the vanguard leading them to that assault. And Jesus is telling them, again, in words that finally, once you understand the speech, once you understand the time, once you understand the content of their faith, now you begin to see that Jesus has a very clear good for them in his mind and in his heart. Because that's where the words of verse 33 really fall in to this passage. Now you're not going to get it. Everything's cryptic. Everything's in parables. It's not in your best interest to know everything I'm about to do. The time is going to come when all is going to be clear. The time will come when your faith will be, in that sense, perfected. Not perfect absolutely, but at least perfected in the fullness of it. It won't just be that you will know, I came from the Father. But I came from the Father to accomplish a mission of mercy to a lost and dying world. I came into this world to achieve redemption. 
and having achieved redemption, dying the death that, I, that, he, that he dies upon the cross, he's raised from the dead, and he ascends to the throne of the universe. And now God's people have a full-orbed faith in the fullness of the saving plan and in the saving mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so then Jesus says, I've said these things to you, not the fullness of the truth, but that you would know that in me you may have peace. You're out for war, you guys. You want to go and take the sword and start lopping off the ears of the servants of the high priests. And I lose you start that activity, you know what Jesus is going to do? He's going to heal that servant's ear. That's what he's going to do. And he's going to tell you, I don't need 12 disciples, so I can ask the Father, and he would send 12 legion of angels. But that the scriptures are fulfilled. He's going to the cross. He's going to die. He's going to the way of the Lamb. He's going to give himself up to his adversaries. They're going to crucify him. They're going to put, slay him. He will die. And he will be raised from the dead. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Because I'm not for war. I'm for peace. I'm the Prince of Peace. I've come as an, from, from the presence of my Father not to bring conflict and war into the world, but to establish the conditions of peace. To bring about a just peace with God. In the death that he dies upon the cross, he achieves peace. He reconciles us to God through his death. That we might have a, 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 our sins pardoned. We might have, you know, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing to us our trespasses, Paul says. The death that he died is a reconciling death. It was designed to reconcile us to God so that there would be peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we would not only be peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but that we would know peace with one another. He takes away the enmity between Jew and Gentile. He establishes peace. The great name he's given. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. Who is he? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He comes to bring peace to a world at war, to a world in conflict, to a world at enmity, to a world filled with anger and bitterness and hopelessness and despair. And the peace he comes to bring is not just that the conflict is over. That's wonderful when conflicts end. Don't you want to see this conflict in the Ukraine just come to an end? People stop being killed? The horrors of war stop being perpetrated? But you know, I'd like to see something more than that. I'd like to see all of the destruction that the war brought wholly healed in its entirety. And that's what God's peace brings. God's peace doesn't only bring the end of the conflict. It brings the presence of abundance. It brings the presence of well-being. It brings the presence of flourishing. It means the desert is no longer a desert. It's a garden restored. No longer is there chaos, there's order, there's beauty, there's hope, there's fullness of consolation.
what Jesus says I've come to bring. In the world is chaos. In me there's peace, there's shalom. In me there's abundance. In me there's fullness. In me there's joy. He says, in the world, you will have troubles. In the world, you will find sufferings. In the world, there will be all kinds of pressure. None of them good. All of them the result of sin. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I've brought about the victory. You guys think you're going to achieve a victory by picking up some swords and going up to Jerusalem and looking to fight a war against the elders and the scribes and the chief priests and the Romans? That's absurd. That's absurd. Even those, should a conflict even occur? It's only a temporary peace. It could only be in truth. It could be real peace. It couldn't be the restoration of man, mankind with God. It couldn't be the bringing in of, the, of a new order of things, a new heavens, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what I bring. That's what I've come to do. I've come to overcome the world in its darkness. I've come to overcome the world in its sin. I've come to overcome the world in its rebellion. I've come to overcome the world in its misery. I've come to overcome the world in its despair. And I've come in the place of misery and despair and trouble and all the rest. I've come to bring joy. I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring reconciliation. I've come to bring truth. I've come to bring righteousness. This my kingdom is not a kingdom meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I've overcome the world. But what are the takeaways? Folks, we need to get the gospel right. And the gospel is not just that, that God came in human flesh. It's not just Christmas and the incarnation, as wonderful and glorious and good as that is. That's but prelude to what is to come. It's the death that he dies. It's the redemption he achieves. It's the reconciliation he secures. It's the salvation he bestows. It came through his work of, of, of doing and dying. Of living the life we should have lived. Dying to death our sins deserved. That reconciles us. That brings forgiveness. That brings peace. That brings the blessings of so great a salvation. Jesus comes and achieves it. He doesn't achieve it by military might. He doesn't achieve it by financial power. He doesn't say, let's get all the bankers of the world together to figure out how to just make the economy great and make society great and make everything just work swimmingly and smoothly and well. He triumphs in weakness. He triumphs by dying. He brings life through death. And you know, that prescription hasn't changed. Jesus said to his disciples who had this notion of going up, conquering, reigning, ruling, sitting on thrones, doing all this stuff that they... That was their version of kingdom. That was their version of what they thought God ought to be doing if God was going to do it right. And Jesus says, that's what the princes of the Gentiles are like. Their great ones are those that have this authority. Their authority to intimidate. Their authority to cajole and to cower people, to, 
to, to beat them down. God's authority is to build up and to strengthen and to. Uh, so it's to serve. It's to serve. He that is greatest among you will be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And that act of love that Jesus displays is what his people are called to follow. We're to love one another as he has loved us. A love that's willing to die. Who's the greatest pastor, minister, Christian worker in the world? Who's the greatest in New York State? Let's have a vote. Who's the greatest? It's the one who's willing to die. It's the one who is willing to live with sacrificial love, stooping to serve, seeking to meet the needs of others, looking outside of ourselves to bless and to bring the realities of kingdom life to bear upon a fallen world. That's the mission, folks, that we're given. That's how we overcome. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And faith in the full message, the full gospel, the full reality of not only the reality that Jesus' origin was from heaven, but that he went back to heaven, having secured eternal redemption for us. And we live as the beneficiaries, the recipients of so great a salvation. And we're called to live out in the power of the Spirit, the truths of that salvation in lives of humble service to our God and to one another, that the principles of the kingdom will be manifest in the world. The people look at Christians and look at the Christian church, instead of having revulsion, saying, a bunch of hypocrites, they say, man, wow, look at that. Whoever saw such a thing, look at how they love one another. Look at how they serve one another. Look at how they prefer one another. Look. And that's the stuff that we should be presenting to the world. And Jesus said by this, so all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love, one, two, another. May God be pleased to bless his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the the Lord Jesus. We're thankful for the fullness of grace and salvation that's found in him. We're thankful that even in portions of scripture that at first we find hard to understand and, and difficult there truly are treasures to unfold. And Lord, I hope in some degree we've unfolded folded some and that we see something of your own gracious heart and your own endeavor to put our minds upon a different order than just what's natural in a fallen world. We would see the realities of the kingdom in at, at play in our Lord's uh, humility in his suffering in his dying in his love and that we would emulate that love that we would love one another as Christ has loved us we would um, show deference to one another and service to one another even as the son of God has come on a mission of mercy to serve us and to meet our needs and to minister uh, to us that we would be servants and we would be endeavoring to Again, model the kingdom in, in lives of humility and, love and hope and uh, in the full demonstration of the power of your grace at work in human hearts. So hear our prayers. 
Bless your people. Strengthen us in your grace. Help us to live in your light as we'd ask these things through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.